You are listening to a message by Travis Scott from our gatherings at Shorebreak. Visit shorebreakchurch.com to get connected with more content. And if you would like to support the gospel being preached in Kona and to thousands online, your tax-deductible donation enables us to further Jesus' mission. Partner with us by giving at shorebreakchurch.com backslash give. Mahalo. Well, what up? Hopefully you guys are having a good new year. Happy new year to you guys. And, uh... It's that time of year again, isn't it, where we are getting ready to turn the calendars to another year, celebrating a new year, and it just seems like one year ago <laughs> that we were doing this again. And every year, of course, it seems like it's going faster and faster. Then, um, you know, part of the new year is there's excitement, there's change, you know, we have to learn how to write 2013 on all of our checks and our documents again, right? It's like, man, I just figured out how to write 2012. You know, maybe some of you are like on 2010, all right? Like, you gotta, you gotta play some catch-up. But we know that there is an exciting aspect to um, going into a new year because we're ready for the chapter of the year 2012 to close on our lives with all of its hurts, all of its pains, maybe even all of its joys. Maybe you've had a great year this last year because we look forward to the unknown script that God has written for us in 2013, don't we? We look forward to that. It's like a whole new year, no history, no baggage. Let's do this. The idea of a fresh start, a clean slate, a new beginning for a new year, we hold special and dear to us. It's the way uh, we understand even redemption, the way God purposed in our hearts to get that. And I believe with confidence, I think I could say with confidence right now that none of us plan for 2013 to be a horrible year, do we? Like, all right, I want 2013 to be the worst year of my life. We don't say that. We don't, we, we, none of us wish that. But why is it that at the end of January, if we're lucky, February, if we're really strong, March, that we begin to fall back into those old habits that those old sins that held us, that entangled us, that ensnared us, we go right back into that rut, right back where we, we had started. And we're like, come on, like, I, I was just thinking I was starting to do well. I was ready for this clean slate, and now I blew it, so now I have to wait till 2014. And so what we do, we, 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 this idea of us always trying to, to get out of that. Well, if you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 15. It's going to be at the, in the Old Testament. We have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel. And I think we're better to turn in the Bible and all of Scripture or any book than to see some epic battles in some huge fails of God's uncensored, raw, revealed truth of some of its characters. And if you're taking notes, we've called this message this evening, Have a Horrible New Year. Have a Horrible New Year. Now you think, okay, wait, really? Like, that's your wish for me. Well, no. But we are going to see, after a seemingly good battle, an epic win, a, a massive conquering, actually not be winning, but losing, you know, like Charlie Sheen, you guys remember that whole crazy thing that he went through? Like winning, winning, when the rest of the nation is looking at this guy who's stoned like, loser. That is, is somewhat what's happening here. We have Saul, king of Israel, 
thinking he's winning, but in, in reality is failing miserably. Uh, he isn't just setting himself up to have a horrible year, but a horrible life to follow after some of the mistakes that he makes. Because something seems to be going so well, oftentimes, even with our lives, can quickly take a turn for the worse. First Samuel chapter 15, we'll pick it up in verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, who was a prophet, and said, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be to you the Lord, for I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen which I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And so Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote yourself to the destruction of the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil on the side of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted, to, I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, best of the things devoted to the destruction, the sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to listen than the fat of rams, for rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you for being king. God, thank you that even though we are on the eclipse of a new year, that every morning your, your mercies await for us, that our slate is clean, and that we can wake up knowing that you love and that you care for us. That no matter what the year 2012 has brought and what 2013 will bring, we know that you are sovereign, you are in control, and you reign on your throne. That whatever we face, excitements, joys, disappointments, sadness, that we can bring them all to you. 
And I pray, God, that we would be a people who are marked by obedience, set apart by your spirit to do the work of spreading the gospel. And God, if your spirit doesn't show up right now, then all we are is just a bunch of people meeting in an old, dusty movie theater. So spirit, come. Transform our lives. Make us more like Jesus. Teach us the things that you want to reveal to us individually and specifically from your word. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you want to have a horrible new year, for that, if you want to be like Saul and have a horrible life, the first thing that we see in Saul's fall and his epic fail, though he thought he was winning, if you want to be like him, the first thing, if you're taking notes, is this. Be ungrateful. Be ungrateful. Now, if there is any group of people who would be considered ungrateful, I would say that the nation of Israel would probably top the charts, or they'd be at least in the top 10 of being some of the most ungrateful nations. Is that not true? I mean, you guys know the story. The Israelites were enslaved to the Egyptians and under Pharaoh's rule, and being in Egypt under that oppression of slavery, they're like, we want to get out of here. I mean, this is dark. We got to get out of this place. So God sends them a, uh, a man named Moses out of the desert, and he calls him, and of course we know the story, these plagues are brought upon uh, Pharaoh and, and these people, and Pharaoh's like, all right, I've had enough. Like, I'm done. I want you, get out. I don't want you anymore. Of course, the, the straw that broke the camel's back was when Pharaoh's firstborn was killed among those plights. So Pharaoh's ticked. He sets them to be free. Well, then what happens? He has a little bit of remorse, right? Now, the God, God's people are like, yes, we're free. We're thankful. They were praising and worshiping God. They were, they were like, we can worship God now. So now, as they're on the way down to the sea, they're departing. Come to find out, well, they find out, well, Pharaoh's guys are after us again. And you know what they immediately did? After thankfulness, you know what they did? Like, Moses, you're a part of this. You, between you and God, you are setting ourselves up for failure. And you immediately like, yep, God wants to kill us. After all the plagues, after all those things. Well, of course, we know that God brings down fire, doesn't allow Pharaoh's army to get to the Israelites. And what does God do? Oh, he parts the Red Sea. Amazing. And they're like, okay, I guess we can go through. So they go through the Red Sea. And then guess what? They start panicking again. Well, then God closes the sea, of course, on all of Pharaoh's army. So they don't have to worry about that anymore. But now they're on the other side of the sea. It's like, where well, are we going to get food? And we're hungry. And they begin to complain. Like, yeah, actually, God, we wish we could be back in Egypt again because the cantaloupe there was delicious. We don't have cantaloupe here. It's like, really, Israel? You would rather be enslaved and bondage under the rule and reign of Pharaoh than be free for cantaloupe? Guys, you know, fine, I'll, I'll give you manna. It's not delivery. It's not even DiGiorno. It's manna from heaven. That's amazing. It's like, and they complained. And the list goes on and on. And even when God led them to the promised land, graciously, after all, I mean, if I was God, I mean, sure, if you were God too, it's like, all right, I'm just going to destroy all of you at this point, right? When, that's what we would do. Um, but God doesn't do that. He is gracious. And so he leads them to the land of promise. Of course, before that, he graciously did that. He didn't have to do that. So as he's like, all right, you guys can go to the land of promise. You guys ready? Like, go. 
Well, Moses was like, well, we should, you know, we're not sure. We need to send a few spies in to go check out the land. And uh, a couple guys, Joshua and Caleb, go out. They're like, oh my gosh, the grapes are massive. Yeah, the giants are huge. There's massive giants in the land that we're supposed to go. But have you seen these grapes? And if God has led us this far, why can't God take us all the way? And they would, they would have gone back to, to Moses and the rest of the nation of Israel there, waiting at the gates of the promised land, holding these massive grapes, throwing them on the ground like, there's giants, but God has brought us this far. But they were unthankful. <laughs> Again. And you see this trend happening over and over and over and over again. All the way up into the last chapter of our Old Testament. It's like, you guys are a people who are just bipolar, unthankful, grateful, unthankful, following God, not following God. And you know who is the first king of this bipolar chosen people of God? Saul. Saul was the first man. Saul was called to be the king of God's chosen people. And that's where we are at in 1 Samuel 15. And much like Israel's history, we have Saul representing the people, supposed to be representing God, having a similar complacency, falling into the same trap that the rest of the people did. Not setting that example as a leader, but falling back into it. And if you could look at verse 11... The Lord speaking through Samuel the prophet in verse 11 says, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. That's not a good day when the God of the universe is is remorseful of making you king, of calling you. Uh, things are beginning to look bad very quickly for him. But why? What, what's going on here? What commandments did he not follow? Well, we need to fast forward. And I'm going to TiVo up to verse 17. And Samuel said this, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed you king over Israel? So now, here we have this king, this man, anointed by the God of the universe. Like, this universe that we live in is ever-expanding, ever-growing. Our depths, our minds, our technology kind of even fathom how big it is. And God's like, I, I measure that by the width of the span of my hand. That God called Saul. But he's not following his commandments. He's not being grateful for the position that God has brought to him. And it's like, oh yeah, but yeah, he is. I mean, look what Samuel said, though you were little in your own eyes. I mean, oh, look how humble Saul is. He is little in his own eyes. That's what Samuel says here, right? You think, oh, this guy's got some humility. But really, the tone is changing here. Samuel's saying, you used to be little in your own eyes. You used to trust in God. You didn't lean on your own understanding. You didn't lean on your own strength. You didn't lean on your own knowledge. But as you matured and as, as, a, as intellectually and as you matured as a leader, you forgot about me. You've abandoned me. You were little in your own eyes, but you're not anymore. And it could no longer be said that Saul was a man marked by humility. It's a sad day for Saul. Instead of being small in his own eyes, he became big in his own eyes. And if you guys have, have been to Disneyland at all, 
I love going to Disneyland, um, partly because um, they have this thing called the Fast Pass, and I have this joy for the Fast Pass. Now, when you, a lot of times when you go to the park, depending on what time of day you go, it can be like really like long lines. In fact, most of the days that I choose to go on, there are long lines. But Fast Pass is this thing you can get where it's like you pull it out, and, and you have the ticket, and, and you show up at a certain time, and you go straight, just go straight right up. You go right in. And, and I love that. And so what I'll do is I'll just go up to the fast pass machines the first time for the moment we walk in the park and I'll get all the fast passes and then we'll plan out the rest of the day because then we don't even have to wait on the lines. And, and, and I love that part about it. But listen, if you want a fast pass track to destructing your life, if you want to cut in line in front of everyone and ruin your life in an instant, even as a Christian, be big in your own eyes. Think highly of yourself. Esteem yourself as a great person. Cut in front of everybody and think, yeah, you know what? I'm, I'm, I am kind of important. I am big in my own eyes. That's what Saul did. Because pride was the poison that took Saul down in a moment's notice. And pride is the poison that takes us down in a moment's notice. I can tell you, there's some conversations I've had with, with a married couple, divorced. And me and another pastor sitting down there counseling them. It was a moment of pride that ruined that marriage, that destroyed it. Now, of course, God will use it for his good and for his glory, but still, in moments of pride, we don't take our calling seriously. And that's exactly what Saul did. Saul did not take his calling seriously. Fact, that's why Samuel, the prophet, reminded Saul who called him. If we look at verse 17, the Lord anointed you king over Israel. It's like, Samuel's like, Saul, God anointed you. God granted you. God set you apart. Saul, don't you remember where you came from? You were the runt of the litter. You, you, I mean, as far as the tribes were concerned, he was from the ghetto little tribe of Benjamin. It was the smallest tribe. It was the runt of the litter of all the tribes. Now, of course, Saul was, was tall and, and buff and ripped. But, you know, I mean, still at the same time, it's, it's like, do you, do you remember when you were little in your own eyes? You know, and don't take this for granted. That's almost what, what, what Saul is saying. It's like, you, you ruined this because you took it for granted. You haven't been thankful. And listen, for us, it's okay to downplay our capability, but never downplay God's calling on your life. It's like, well, why? Just that. It's God's calling. It's not your calling. It's not your potential. It's God's potential, his power, working through you as a conduit for his glory. Never downplay that. Never try to minimize that. It's like, well, yeah, but, yeah, but God is great even though you are small and weak and frail and you will fail. And just the fact that God has called you, that's incredible, right? And there isn't anything worth trading for God's anointing on your life. There isn't anything worth trading for God's call and anointing on on your life. No pleasure, no thing, nothing is worth trading. But often, we will do that. 
We will screw it up. We will throw the towel in. No act of disobedience is worth downplaying God's call. Don't have big eyes for yourself. Have small eyes for yourself. Just like what what Samuel, I mean, Samuel's like, though, past tense, you are little in your own eyes. Saul, you you were humble. You depended on God. You had this sweet childlike faith believing that God could do anything. What, What happened? Where did that go? Saul took his anointing for granted. He took God for granted. He didn't take it seriously. Now, what is one way that we can guard ourselves from ourselves, right? What is one way we can guard against this? It's simple. Be thankful. Be a person of gratitude. Be a person of thankfulness. I mean, thank God for, for everything that he's given you. The, fa- the fact that, like, if you have a job, thank him that you have a job. If you have an income that's, 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 that you're able to pay your bills, thank him for that. If you have a roof over your head, big or small, ghetto or not, thank him for the roof over your head. There is plenty to be thankful for. The fact that if you are a Christian and that God called you, that alone is worth being thankful for. Because when you despised him, when you spat in his face, when you wanted nothing to do with him, he called you, he loved you, and he did a great work in your life when you were, were sinning against him and you hated him. That's plenty to be thankful And the reason why we're thankful is because a thankful heart wages war against a prideful heart. A thankful heart wages war against a prideful heart. And I have this great perspective, maybe some of you do too, if if, if you do have children, of seeing that in your own kids, right? Um, I have a three-year-old son. His name is Curran. Some of you guys know him. He's a a fantastic, feisty boy. Um, And... Uh, you know, people say, oh, you know, and he's three. So, you know, people's like, oh, the terrible twos and the troublesome threes. Okay, that, that, that might be partially true, but I love that age. I really do. It's a blast because you get, them, you get to see them mature from that awkward stage of figuring things out to figuring things out. And, and in that stage, you kind of see them really growing. And so in this stage, you know, this last week, I remember um, one of, the, one of uh, his, his older brother decided to share a toy with him. So, um, Curran really wanted this toy. He's like, I want a toy. You know, that's what he's doing because he, he gets angry and feisty. So um, sub, my, the, his older brother, Sebastian, gave him the toy. And, and, and you know what he does? You know, he responded. He's just like this. He takes the toy. He's like, he's <laughs> like, what is that? Like, what, what are you doing? Um, and he's just grunting. Like, finally, I got what I wanted. And so I looked at him like, Curran, can you just, like, say thank you? And he'll look at me, and he was just, he, he, he seriously was just quiet. Like, he would not say, I'm like, Curran, say thank you. And he was like, thank you. <laughs> and that's what he, I mean, he was just like, you could see the, you know, his veins were popping out of his neck. He has this vein that seriously popped out of his neck when he was doing it. It was like, it took everything inside of him to go against his pride to say thank you. So be thankful to be a person of gratitude, not to be a person of ingratitude because a thankful heart wages war against a prideful heart. I've yet to see a prideful, thankful person at the same time. Some, we'll have moments of thankfulness and we'll fall into pride, no doubt, but you don't see them at the same time. Timothy Dexter 
he was a 19th century businessman, an author, an entrepreneur, said this. An ungrateful man is like a hog under a tree eating acorns, but never looking up to see where they came from. I love that picture. See, Saul was just like that. He was a hog trying to find his own glory, saying, look what I've accomplished. Look how successful I've been. Look how far I've brought my own life. Look what I've done. Look how great I am. But never looking up to the one who gave it all to him. Never looking up. Saul's heart slipped from thankfulness into pride. If you're taking notes, write this down. 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Paul writes this, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God and Christ Jesus for you. So what's God's will for my life? I'll tell you this, thankfulness in all circumstances. Now that doesn't mean, you know, it's like, oh sweet, I just got in a wreck, my car is totaled. Praise the Lord. No, like, you know, no. But you're thankful nonetheless in it. And you know, I, I mean, thankfulness should be the mark of every Christian because there is plenty, plenty to be thankful for. You just have to be looking for it, right? There is plenty to be thankful for as a Christian. Just the fact that you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, you put your faith in Jesus. That, that alone is huge. And Paul understood that thankfulness keeps our eyes on Jesus and takes our eyes off of ourselves. It causes us to, peop, to be people who have big eyes for God and small eyes for herself. But if you want to have a horrible life, a horrible year like Saul, the first thing is you can be ungrateful. The next thing that we see, the second thing we see happening in Saul's life is if you want to be ungrateful like him, if you want to fail like he did, just take it easy. Take it easy. See, even though Saul won the battle, he didn't finish the war. Saul, it seemed like he won the battle over the Amalekites here, as we've read in verse 14. Samuel's like, but did you really win the battle? And of course, you gotta love, Samuel is approaching Saul. You gotta gotta see this picture. The prophet is approaching his old-time friend, the the king of Israel. And if you look down in in, in verse um, 13, Samuel came to Saul, and what, 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 is Samuel's, what is Saul's immediate response? Blessed be the Lord, for I have performed the commandment of the Lord. <laughs> so I did everything God told me, just so you know, FYI. So what's up, bro? Like, I mean, I finished the war, everything's good, so, so what's going on, huh? Try, trying to kind of derail it. Samuel would have none of it. Because what does Samuel say in verse 14? Um, verse 14, what then is the bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen which I hear? Samuel's like, really? You really did everything God, then why do I hear animals? It's like, well, what are you talking about? Well, let's look at verse 18. Samuel reminded Saul of the commandment that the Lord had given him. And he said, And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote yourselves to the destruction of the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are what? Partially taken out. 
We'll take most of them out, but we'll have leftovers. You know, no, 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 right? Cons- to, to, to be obliterated till they are consumed. God's commandment to Saul was to completely annihilate, obliterate, wipe them off the face of the earth. So Samuel comes up, it's like, yeah, why do I hear the bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen? What's going on? But Saul's like, going back to verse 13, hey, I did all that the Lord commanded. I did everything he told me to do. Really, did he? That's not according to Samuel. And from this we can learn that partial obedience is full-fledged disobedience. If you are thinking of, I'm going to partially follow God, you are fully being disobedient towards him. It's all obedience or no obedience at all to God. And to say, well, you know, God, I'm, I'm kind of going to do this thing for you, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to be sexually pure, but we're going to stay out late at night, or we're going we're to be in the car in a dark place, and we'll see what happens, but I'm, but I'm not going to go any further than second base. Are you really being obedient? Now, I mean, is partial obedience is full-fledged disobedience. See, Saul took it easy. He took it easy. He found the easy way. He started, but he didn't finish. Now, of course, we know biblically that, that Saul isn't the only person who's done this, is he? How about David, King David, the man to rule and reign after Saul? How about his story? Maybe you guys remember it. They were to go at war, and so David sends everyone off to war, a war that he should have gone to battle at. And so him staying behind, sending all the boys to go off to fight this war, he's chilling in his palace. He has some lemonade, probably enjoying some pita and hummus dip. I don't know what you did then, but probably enjoying something on his lanai of his beautiful palace looking over Israel. And what happens? He sees a chick bathing naked on top of a roof. And it's like, well, what the heck is that chick doing bathing on her? Where's her husband? He's off at war, fighting the same war that David should have been off fighting that war. But he stayed behind. He took it easy, right? And we know what happens. David sees this chick, bow, chicka, bow, wow. Soon you know they have a baby. The baby dies. They end up getting married. David's just in a wreck. He's like, well, I got to do something with the husband. So what does he do? He sends off the husband again to another war where David should have gone, but he didn't go. And that man, he put him in the front of the lines where he knew he would be killed. And David murders Bathsheba's husband. See, taking it easy actually ends up It's not taking it easy at the end of the day after all, is it? Or how about Solomon, right? He could have fought for his one marriage that we read about in the Song of Solomon. He could have stayed in fidelity with this beautiful lady, but did he? No. He didn't take it. He took it easy. He took the path of least resistance by amounting 700 wives and 300 concubines. How about Samson, who shacked up with Delilah? He took it easy. Or even some of our New Testament characters, Peter in the courtyard with young teenage girls saying, you're a follower of Jesus. And Peter's like, no, I'm not, no, I'm not. Took it easy. You don't want to have to face a difficult time. You guys, we cannot afford to take it easy. In fact, that's why Jesus uses words like, 
as far as being a disciple, he uses words like losing, dying, crucifying. They hate you. They hate me, so they're going to hate you. Perseverance, long-suffering. There's no taking it easy in Christianity. I recently read an article that caught my eye. It was uh, an article titled, How Netflix Bankrupt and Destroyed Blockbuster. Um, show of hands, anyone still use Blockbuster anymore? Anyone at all? It's okay, there's no shame in it if you say, okay, Netflix users? All right, so this article caught my eye, and so I'm sure it would spark your attention too, because it's because some of the, the, the this younger generation that's coming up, they're not even, what's Blockbuster? Blockbuster? What's that? Well, this article said, let me read it to you. A couple of years ago, a Blockbuster spokesperson said, we have every reason to believe that we will come out of the recapitalization process financially stronger and more competitively positioned for the future. Back in 2000, Blockbuster declined several offers to purchase Netflix for a mere $50 million. The offer was definitely not shabby for a company that at the time was bringing in billions of dollars of revenue in every single year. But Blockbuster is certainly hitting themselves for not jumping at the offer, which may have seemed irrelevant and unimportant at the time. Now, although Blockbuster began, rent, began a rentals by mail and streaming services belatedly in order to fight against competitors like Netflix, they did not come on strong enough or soon enough. It was a battle between old technology and new technology. And it looks like new technology won out. In the end. See, this just goes to show that even in the business world, those businesses that slack, that take it easy, that stop advancing, that stop moving forward, that keep pressing deeper and further and moving forward, get messed up. They don't last. I mean, we know Blockbuster, just like none of us in here use Blockbuster. 95% of us use Blockbuster. It goes to show. How you live your life really does matter to God. How I live my life, how you live your life really does matter to God. And what happened to Blockbuster is what can happen to us. When we begin to advance... When we stop advancing, when we quit moving forward, when we stop going to battle like David, when we stop fighting for our purity like Solomon, when we don't finish the war like Saul and begin to coast on yesterday's victories, we are setting ourselves up to fail because we are taking it easy. Proverbs 21.31, write that down, says this, that the horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. See, the victory belongs to Christ Jesus who conquered sin, who conquered Satan, who conquered death, but it is up to us to prepare and to be ready for battle. It's up to us not to rest on last Sunday's sermon or a teaching that we heard on the radio or even something that someone shared, but we need to be in the word for ourselves day in, day out, saturating our minds, saturating our hearts, saturating our souls and the truth of God's word. We need to be daily 
without ceasing in communication with God and a constant conversation with him, talking with him, explaining to God and prayer, God, I don't feel like following you right now. I don't feel like going to church. I don't feel like being obedient. Can you help me? We can't afford to take it easy. Martin Luther said that prayer is a strong wall and a fortress of the church. It is a godly, it is a goodly Christian weapon. See, often we get lazy. We don't get in the word. And our Bible collects dust. And then you look at your life and you wonder, yeah, God, why haven't I heard from you? Well, I don't know, maybe because you haven't been in this book in six days. You can wipe the dust off of it. I know this is a story for my life. Listen, I faked like I read this book. I was in community groups, even in, even in high school. And I was like, yeah, did you read the Bible? Like, I totally read the Bible. I didn't read the Bible for, for months on my own. I didn't pray to God. And we look and we wonder, why am I at? Because we get lazy and we choose not to advance forward. We don't take risks. We don't charge it for the gospel. You know, honestly, I hope that we are the kind of people that are willing to take risks so great for the kingdom of God that God has to come through for us. I mean, at the end of our life, when we're on our deathbed or, or whatever, or, you know, we're being raptured or whatever that, I mean, at the end of our life, don't you want to be able to look back and be like, you know, we, we, we went for it. We risked it all. We didn't take it easy. We took the hard path. We, we charged it. We went for it. I mean, there are even decisions right now. I know we're a small church. I know we're a new church. I know we're a young church. But there are decisions right now that we are facing that, that I've been meeting and, and praying about bringing before the Lord. And it's like, man, this is all in or, or fail, God. There are things that we are taking on. It's like, I look at the, the challenge and it's, it's exciting and it's wonderful. But you know what? This thing, if Jesus doesn't show up, it's over. But you know, we don't take it easy, do we? We press on. We advance. It's like, yeah, sure, it might not work out. But you know what? If Jesus is there, if Jesus is with us, why not risk it all, right? Why not take that risk and go for it? Don't take it easy because there's no such thing as taking it easy for the Christian. There is no path of least resistance. There is no easy street when we are marked by the blood of Christ. Just think about who we follow. Christ himself did not take it easy, did he? He was crucified on a cross. That's why Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 16, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, tape up his cross, Luke adds, daily, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whatever loses his life for my sake will find it. So we don't take it easy. We press on. We endure till the end. We fight the good fight. And Jesus endured for you. You should endure for him. He endured to the point of death on the cross. He will see you through and he will give you the strength to endure. Because to take it easy like Saul took it easy, not completing the task, not fully obeying the command of God has devastating consequences as we will soon read.
But if you want to continue to follow down the path of Saul, if you want to keep going down that way, if you want to be ungrateful, if you want to take it easy, third and finally, the last thing we see in Saul's life that we can do if we want to ruin our life is this. Enjoy the royalties. Enjoy the royalties. Take the credit. Look for yourself. At the end of the movie, try to find yourself in the credits. See if anyone really cares. Let's, look at, let's all look at verse 12. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. I don't know if they had a, a scheduled plan to meet at Starbucks or, you know, the coffee bean or whatever is happening. I mean, but clearly, Samuel said, I have to wake up and let Saul know the word of the Lord. I need to let him know. And Saul came to Carmel, and behold, what's going on here? He set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. It's like, wait, wait, what, what, what? He set up a monument for himself? Really? Like, when I've read that and I, I chuckle because like, wait, St- Saul here is making a statue of himself for himself. It's like, really? I mean, what's going on here? This is, this is absolutely ridiculous. Like, how conceited of Saul doing this. And I'm sure Samuel hearing this, he's like getting ready to go to meet him in the morning. He's like, wait, um, he, yeah, he's making a, a what of his what? Really? No way. I mean, that is, that is ridiculous. Yeah, it's like, and I'm sure Saul's thinking at this moment, yeah, you once had small eyes for yourself, but your eyes are so big. Your eyes are so big for yourself that you need to look at yourself, not just your own reflection, but a statue of yourself. Like, where is this guy going with his life? Like, how is he ending up here? Now, of course, you know, Saul, I mean, he just think he's, he's on cloud nine. He's like, we won. We had the victory. They've busted out the champagne. The confetti is there. The party hats are on. It's like, hey, we're having a party, right? Let's do this. Let's go, go boys. Let's have a party. And it's like, oh, yeah, guys, you know what we should do for a party? Saul's probably like, let's just make a statue of me. How does that sound? Everybody's like, yeah. And so I can see Saul there. You know, all right, so we got the statue. Like, ching, 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 ching. Hey, guys, do you think my butt looks too big on this? Like, really? Like, do you think it's proportionate to the rest of my body? Like, are my shoulders, do they resemble my V-shaped back? Is my back ripped? I mean, pathetic, yes. That's what's going on here in this guy's life. And I know, like, we, it's like, really? Come on. Like, couldn't this guy think, And Samuel is like, I can't imagine. I mean, Samuel is, knowing this, Samuel has just got to be even more bummed. And we know as we've read in verse 13, Saul's like, yeah, but I have utterly, and I quote, I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. So Saul said, that statement alone is evidence of the power and depth of his own self-deception. Like, how deceived is this guy, right? He had to rationalize his obedience. Just like when you go, if you're a school teacher, and you're walking with the kids, and the kids are fighting, it's like, all right, who did it? And the first kid's like, it was not me. No way. And there's like, you know, paint on their hands. It's like, yeah, sure. I mean, that, that's what's going on here. 
So of course you did it. See, Saul wants to make a name for himself. So I made a statue of himself. He didn't even know he was deceived. And listen, it's, it's difficult times for us to realize in our own life, when am I being deceived? How do I know if I'm getting off track? But you can know this. You can know you're deceived when you want to make a name for yourself and not to make much of the name of God. When you're seeing, and, and we might not shape carved images of ourselves, but there are other ways we worship ourselves. There definitely are. And this sad moment of Saul reminds me of Galatians 6.3. Galatians 6.3 says, For if anyone thinks of himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. He deceives himself. Well, what's the big deal of all this, right? Really, what's the big deal? God, do you really have to put Saul through all this? I mean, what's the big deal about the Amalekites? Why do you want them utterly destroyed? I mean, this almost seems cruel, right? And you think, you sit back like, God, could, could you just kind of blow this one off? Could you just let this one go? It's important to know that the Amalekites are a picture of sin. If you're taking notes, write that down. Whenever you study the Bible, you see the Amalekites, they're a picture of sin for us. As we apply this truth to us, they're a picture of sin. But you know what? They are literally a picture of sin for Israel. For verse 18 says that the Lord sent you on a mission and go to devote to the destruction, the sinners, the Amalekites. The Amalekites are a picture of sin. And don't be like Saul who had to rationalize his obedience. Because you cannot rationalize your sin. You can only destroy it. There's no flirting with sin. You have to get rid of it. You have to cut it off. John Owen said, to be, kill, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. There's no rationalizing with your sin. There's no flirting with your sin. Isn't that what Jesus said? Jesus said, hey, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. For it is better that one of your members perish than for all of your members to burn in the eternal lake of fire. You have to radically deal with your sin because God takes sin seriously. It is a big deal to him. We don't, we don't flirt with our sin. We don't play and toy with our sin. We destroy it. We annihilate it. Because our disobedience, like Saul's, dethrones God and elevates ourself. When we choose to disobey, and we choose to, oh, all this flirt with our sin, it's bigger than just sinning. When we choose to disobey God, we are dethroning God in our hearts and erecting ourselves at our own throne and worshiping ourselves at God, saying, you know what, God? My desire and glory is more important than your desire and glory. And it's like, man, God, like, don't you, I mean, really? Like, so now we're gonna get on this whole obedience and, and disobedience thing, really? 
is often we think, yeah, well, God just wants me to be, to be disobedient from having, to keep me from having a good time. That is not the case at all. God wants to protect his people, the Amalekites. He wants to protect them. He wants to protect the Israelites from sin. And God wants to protect us from the dangers of sin. It's just like my boy, you know, my, my youngest. He was running around with a screwdriver. He was all stoked and it was cute. He's like, yeah, I got a screwdriver. And he wasn't saying that, but you could see it on his face. He had a smile from ear to ear. And uh, he's just like running around. Yeah, screwdriver party time. And it's like, I'm not going to come rain on his party. But guess what? He was running and then he saw the outlet. And I, I, I saw it coming. And I was like, well, let's see if he actually goes for it. And he just darted for it like, like, like hand behind his back, running like he was just getting ready to take this outlet out. And I had to intervene as father and like, no. And I ripped that thing right out of his hands. And he looked at me and he just began to pout and he began to cry. Like, you're about to take yourself out, son. Like, I'm looking out for you, okay? I'm here to protect you. If the room says explosives, biohazard, this can kill you, don't run in there. I'm protecting you. I'm guarding you. I'm keeping you from something because I love you. See, true pleasure is found in obeying God and not sacrificing for God. We think, oh, but if I open that door, if I take that thing, if I go to that party, if I visit that website, then I will have true pleasure. But no, 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 that's not the case at all because true pleasure is found in obeying God and not sacrificing ourselves for God. God doesn't want your dead sacrifice. He wants your heart to be inclined towards his pleasure. He doesn't want your sacrifice. He wants your heart to be attuned to his glory so that you would be satisfied. And as Christians, our obedience should flow from a heart changed by radical grace. Your heart, my heart, changed by radical grace isn't looking at God's commandments as burdensome, but looking at them as life-giving because Jesus fulfilled all of them for us even when we are not perfect, even when we have sinned, because we, we do sin and we do choose to dethrone God in our lives frequently. But thankful is the heart that has experienced the grace of God that has been changed by his grace because our, our inclination is turned from worshiping self to desiring to be better worshipers of God. You know, Saul thought he was obeying, right? Saul thought he was winning. And he thought he won the battle, but you know, and he took the credit, but it's not really what's happening here at all in reality. Because the Lord's heart towards Saul has been changed. The Lord is, I believe, saying to Saul and maybe saying to some of us in here, yeah, I, I, I fought for you. I've won that battle for you. You don't have to take credit for it, right? Because the horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. You guys, when we take credit, when we receive the royalty, we are doing the opposite of what we were created and fashioned to do by God. 
you were created to glorify God. And when we make a statue of ourselves like Saul, ching, 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 right? Look at this. And when we glorify our own name or when we, when we act in disobedience, what we're ultimately doing is glorifying ourselves. God will not share his glory. Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to anyone else, nor share my praise with carved idols. Ironic, right? Carved idols, as Saul is making an idol of himself, resurrecting a statue as he is taking the royalties that God deserved. What does Saul's friend and prophet Samuel say to him in his sin? Samuel would do what any true good friend would do. Tell him the truth about his sin. He calls him out. And what does he say to him? Verse 23 is the call, is the charge. For the Lord, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. So from this moment on, Saul is not the anointed king of Israel. Though he will hold the title, he is not anointed anymore. And he is obviously crushed at this. And to top it off, off of all these things, if that wasn't enough, verse 28, what did, what did, what did uh, the prophet Samuel say to Saul in verse 28? Because now we, we don't have time for time's sake. We can't get there. But they're kind of going back and forth and, and Saul is trying to defend himself. And Samuel said to him in verse 28, the Lord has torn the kingdom from Israel from you this day. If you haven't gotten it, it's being ripped from your fingers. And he has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Ouch, right? Oh, not is he only better than you. He happens to be your son-in-law. David. And of course, that's a whole nother study in and of itself. But it just goes to show that just because you may be doing good now, that does not determine your finish. It's not how you start, but it's how you finish what counts. Okay? It's not about, well, I had about, everyone has a bad start. We've all been born into sin. But it's the endurance. It's the end. It's the aspect of not quitting. And this life of Saul could never be more real for us today, right? So applicable, so real, so practical to our own lives. But what happens? What's the end of this story? How does it all go down? In closing, let's read verses 32 and 33. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. These are Samuel, remember, he left over, he had some leftovers from the spoils. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag into pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. 
Wow. Samuel understood that disobedience dethrones God and elevates self. And if Saul wouldn't take care of this sin, Samuel was going to take care of this sin. You rationalize your sin, it'll only destroy you. You can't have a handle on it. I can't have a handle on it. It needs to be dealt with. And that's exactly what Samuel does here, doesn't he? How does he deal with the with with, with Agag? He hacks him into pieces. Now all the dudes in here are like, "Yep, that is awesome." <sighs> What is the Agag in your life? What is the sin that has been in your life that you have been rationalizing that needs to be hacked into pieces? You settle that with the Lord tonight. You hack that into pieces. It doesn't belong there. And I don't know what it is, And the Lord has revealed to me, even in studying this, the multiple agags that are in my life, the multiple multiple infectious sins. And you think, really, like, is agag really that bad? Man, if you knew the history of agag, they killed innocent children. We get upset at what happened. You know, in Connecticut at the elementary school, and rightfully so, times that by 1,000, that is what the Amalekites have done to God's people. And that is what sin does to you. What sin in your life do you need to hack into pieces? Do you need to get an app for your phone, for your iPod Touch, for your iPod, or for your computer? Do you need to download some sort of uh, like program, software that protects you from visiting those websites on your phone or on something? Do you need to... Delete your Facebook account or your Instagram account because every time you go on there, you only get more and more bitter because you weren't invited to that thing because you weren't part of that party. Or maybe because you're on Facebook, the Facebook account that you've had is opened yourselves up and it has led you down to communication with people that you should should not be talking to. Maybe it's an old ex. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's just visiting sites that you should not see. Do you need to stop being overly friendly with someone at work? You're married or they're married or maybe they're just bad news and you need to cut that relationship up. Maybe you're addicted to the plastic, right? It's like, well, I don't have money to spend, but I got the plastic, and so I swipe that. And in swiping it, you do it to find, it's an act of worship so that you can be materialistic and so that you can have things that you, that you can own to show off to people that you can't afford so that you can appear to be important because you have dethroned God in disobedience and you worship yourself in your life. What is the agag in your life that you need to cut up? 
that you need to deal with radically, that you need, maybe you need to hack the credit card into pieces. Maybe you need to stop talking to that chick at lunch break or maybe that guy or you need to stop spending money that you do not have and you need to be obedient towards the Lord. You need to find true pleasure as found in obeying God and the heart that is inclined towards him really is genuinely satisfied and that none of these other sins that we rationalize meet our needs and our expectations. Radically deal with your sin in this moment. In this moment. Settle it with God. Because if you don't kill your sin, it will kill you. It will take you out. And the consequences are not worth it. And I say that, like, it's like, well, this is a great New Year's message. I can't wait for 2012 or 13. It's already starting off great in 2012. I believe that the year of 2013 will be the most fruitful year of your life if you find the pleasure in following Jesus. Not finding his, command, his commandments burdensome, but finding them a joy. And Colossians 3.5 tells us to put to death, to put to death whatever is earthly in you. So let us repent. Let our minds be changed and renewed by the Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit wreck you from the inside out. And let your desires and your heart's inclination be matured in finding that God isn't withholding back pleasure from us, but that he wants us to experience all the good pleasures that he has already given to us that are found in his son Jesus in obedience. God, thank you for this time that we've had in your word. Thank you that we are closing this chapter of, a, of 2012. Thank you that you've called us and that you've chosen us and that we can believe and have faith in you and that we can follow you. What a privilege that is, God. And so God, in this moment, I know that you have done the work of convicting us, some of us, in certain areas. And Holy Spirit, you've illuminated areas in our heart, the agags in our life that need to be hacked into pieces. So for those of us in here right now, just sitting in this moment, let this be a Holy Spirit moment. Even if you're listening to this at a podcast later, let us just sit in the presence of the Holy Spirit and take this moment to repent from the sin that you've been rationalizing. And hack that into pieces with the, the truth of the gospel and the word of God. God, I know better 
than anyone in here. We are all sinners fallen short of your glory and we have been restored by your goodness and your grace. And I believe that 2013 will be the most reckless year that you turn Kona and our lives upside down for your glory. And I pray that it would begin with hearts set apart for your pleasure and being obedient to you. Hack those areas in my life personally that need to be dealt with. Let us radically deal with our sin because you have radically dealt with sin on Golgotha. So as we move into this time where we worship you and we lift up your name that we can find good pleasure in you. God, have your way with us as we continue to worship you in song. In your name we pray, amen. We hope that Jesus is doing a work in your life from the message that you just heard. We would love to hear how you were impacted and what was impressed on your heart. Share your story by emailing connect at shorebreakchurch.com. And if you don't know Jesus as God, Lord and Savior, or you have more questions, send us an email to info at shorebreakchurch.com so we can get you dialed in with a free Bible and resources for your new relationship with Jesus.